hear the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and, and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the, right, with the fruit of righteousness that comes to Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaims Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your word. It is life-giving and so we pray this morning that you would do that, that you would give us joy in Christ as you give us life in him. Unfold your word before us, Father. Do this for the sake of the fame of Christ through the power of your spirit who points us to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Restoration kids, you can make your way to the back. Uh, we are so thankful for uh, the children that we get to serve, and all of you members who disciple them regularly, we are, we are thankful for your efforts. Uh, and as you heard read this morning, we do, we, we study, uh, we continue our study of the book of Philippians. And so if you're new to the Bible, uh, or still asking questions about the Christian faith, it might be helpful to know that Philippians was a real letter written by a real guy named Paul to a real church in a city called Philippi. And it's a church that Paul himself had started probably about 10 years before this letter was sent. And he was writing a letter to the church in Philippi for the sake of unifying the Philippian church so they might enjoy the gospel and advance the gospel 
And as they do this, as they're united in the gospel, they're enjoying it and they're advancing it, Paul tells them their joy will be made complete. And that's why we've named this series, Philippians, Joy Made Complete. And so in the first 11 verses, we've seen Paul express thanks to God for his brothers and sisters there in Philippi. He rejoices in their gospel partnership. He tells these brothers and sisters of his deep affection and love for them. And last week we saw he shares a prayer with them. He, he prays their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment to the glory and to the praise of God. And this morning we'll confine our attention to verses 12 through 14. And what we see in these verses is this. Suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel. Suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel. That's the big idea, and that's going to be our guiding thought this morning. Uh, So for my friends here this morning that are not Christians, uh, I hope you see uh, why perhaps Christians would suffer, be ridiculed, persecuted for the name of Christ. Why would we go about doing that? And for my brothers and sisters, I hope that you're encouraged that we look at this text in a fresh, bold way. Suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel. Let's look at that statement one half at a time as we unpack this text. Verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, or as your footnote might say, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You can imagine the Philippian church gathered around hearing these words. Maybe Lydia is there. And she's, she's remembering how 10 years ago Paul found her at a prayer gathering and shared the gospel with her and she came to faith and Paul baptized her. Maybe the Philippian jailer and his family are there. They're, they're remembering how Paul led them to faith in Jesus and baptized them as well. And no doubt there's plenty of other people that some have probably have met Paul and many others haven't, but they know with him and they've benefited from his gospel ministry. This church cares deeply for Paul. And so they sent this guy Epaphroditus to go check on Paul to bring him gifts and some financial support. And now Epaphroditus has come back and he's got this letter in his hand. He said, here, here, this is from Paul. Read, read this letter. And so they're, they're eagerly waiting for these words. And Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This may not be what they expected. They knew Paul was at this moment sitting in prison in Rome. And instead of hearing that his imprisonment stopped the gospel, he says, no, 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 it's served to advance it all the more. What has happened to me? And that little phrase, what has happened to me, perhaps would have caused the Philippian church to play a movie in their mind of the years of Paul's troubled events in his life. You can read about those this afternoon in Acts 21 through 28. They knew that years earlier, Paul was in Jerusalem and he was falsely accused by his own people and seized and a religious mob begins to beat him. And that mob only stops beating him when he's arrested by Roman soldiers and thrown into a local prison. And while he sits in that prison, there's a murderous plot that breaks out to take his life. And so by the cover of night, they have to secretly transfer Paul to another prison in Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. And he would sit in that prison for two years. Injustice after injustice, he was nothing but a political puppet. And finally, as a Roman citizen, 
Paul appeals to Caesar, it'd be like us appealing to the Supreme Court. And he's granted a trial in Rome, 1,500 miles away by sea. And so on the way to Rome, he nearly dies. In a storm, his boat is shipwrecked. Eventually, when he gets to Rome, he's not given freedom until his trial, but no, he's placed in chains under a close surveillance. And he waits for a trial. Not a day, not a week, not a month, not a year. But at least two years, Paul waits for his trial. And these events only trace the most recent events in Paul's life, perhaps the four or five years. But if we broaden our scope a little bit, we see that Paul was often in prison, often beaten, and often near death. He gives us this recount of his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He begins by saying, I'm a servant of Christ. And then he lays out his suffering resume, as it were. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. All of this. And he sits in his prison cell, perhaps hands chain shackled with each stroke of the pen comes the clanking of iron. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. One of the very first things Paul wants the Philippian church to know is that their gospel partnership is not in vain. Even though it might appear dark and dim, the gospel continues to go forth. The good news of Jesus is making its way to more and more people. More and more people are hearing about the joy-filled life, the sin-paying death, and the life-giving resurrection of Christ. Paul's passion and priority is the enjoyment and the advancement of the gospel. And here's what he wants the Philippian church to know. Not to be concerned about his circumstances, but to celebrate the spread of the gospel. He's answering his own prayer that he prayed last week. Let love abound. Love is other-oriented. And Paul in this moment is other-oriented. Notice what he says about his imprisonment in verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13. My imprisonment, or some translations say my chains, is for Christ. He's not asking, why is this happening to me? He's rejoicing that no matter what happens, it's for Christ. And that word for points us in two directions. It's both the cause of his imprisonment and the effect of his imprisonment. So we could say it like this. Paul is saying my imprisonment is for or because of Christ. He's in prison because he's boldly speaking about Jesus. But we could also say, he could say my imprisonment is for or to the glory 
of Christ. That is the effect is he's able to display his devotion to Jesus. And it gives him hope in the midst of troubling circumstances. Paul's imprisonment is because of Christ and it's to the glory of Christ. What in the world does this have to do with us sitting in an air-conditioned auditorium in Washington, D.C.? What does that have to do with us? You might be thinking, I probably will not find myself in jail for speaking about Jesus. And you're probably, probably, probably correct. So how do we begin to think about taking this and begin to apply it to our own lives? First, let me give you a couple of ways. First, this text should prompt us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in chains for Christ. You heard Kyle pray for some of them. We pray for them regularly. We sit in a very comfortable place, but that's not the sake for many Christians around the world. Just this week, I received an email from one of our gospel partners in the Middle East. Here's a portion of what it said. I got to meet up with Rana. She is bold enough to meet in public to study the Scriptures. Pray that her faith is strengthened in the midst of the possibility of an honor killing from her family. That's word from our gospel partners. Persecution for Christ is just a relationship away. I think of a brother I met when I was in the Middle East a couple years ago. I had the privilege of helping fill up his baptismal. The next morning he'd be baptized. And after he was baptized, he was making a journey back to his home country where he could be killed, tortured, beat for being baptized and sharing the gospel. And he said, well, if I don't go, who else is going to go? Those are just a few examples of my own life, of people that I know. And so be aware of and, and pray for those who have to write like Paul, my imprisonment is for Christ. You heard Kyle pray for Voice of the Martyrs. Go bookmark persecution.com and sign up for their free email newsletter. It's, a, it's a, a group that tells the stories of persecuted believers and tries to bring relief in the midst of it. So this text should prompt us to pray and be aware of those in prison, but you should also realize that at some level, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. Look over at verse 29 of chapter 1. Here's what Paul says to the Philippian church. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same gospel that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul tells the Philippian church they're engaged in the same conflict, yet they're not in prison. So what's he mean? Well, I think he means, one, that they could be put in prison, but then two, just generally, I think he means general opposition to the gospel and those who follow Jesus. And this is in line with Scripture. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Well, what does that look like? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 1 Peter chapter 4 And then we have the words of Christ Himself. 
the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. While it may not be to the same level of physical persecution, the Scriptures are replete with categories of ridicule and oppression. And so if you pursue wealth with all of your vigor, no one will oppose you. If you spend your life chasing the American dream, a nice big house, a fancy job, lush vacations, no one will oppose you. They'll probably envy you or applaud you. But if you spend your life, whether you are married or unmarried or widowed, whether you're a student, a lawyer, a scientist, a musician, a stay-at-home mom, a consultant, a business owner, a pastor, a parent, an analyst, a politician, whatever you're doing, if you spend your life devoted to delighting in the supremacy of Christ and inviting others to do the same, you will be opposed. Remember who we follow. Jesus, the suffering servant, who is marred, despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, chastised, oppressed, mocked, betrayed, crucified. And Jesus says, follow me. And we say, follow you there, Jesus? On the road of ridicule and oppression, follow you there, Jesus? And Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's Paul's frame of mind. That's how he's encouraging the Philippian church to live. In Restoration Church, that's how he's encouraging us to live. All of us are one comment or opinion away from being reviled or insulted for following Christ. Don't be surprised when it happens. Rejoice. Rejoice that your life has enough weight to demand a verdict. When, the, when you're opposed, now to be clear, I'm not talking about being opposed for being mean, for being arrogant, for being stupid. Or harsh? No, that doesn't account. That, no. I'm talking about for a humble faith lived with convictional kindness. That's what I'm talking about. When you're opposed because of that, rejoice knowing that your life is cutting sharply enough and deeply enough to leave a lasting impression for the glory of God. And so this passage reminds us we'll suffer for or because of Jesus. But it also reminds us that all suffering can be used to the glory of Jesus. So face all your suffering to the glory of Jesus. Remember Paul lists, what has happened to me? And some of that what has happened to me is circumstantial. Shipwrecks, storms, hunger. Those are not necessarily things that come just from following Christ. Yet Paul seems to say, well, they're for Christ. For every hardship, for every circumstance, Paul has a frame of mind to devote to and delight in Jesus. And that's what he's telling the Philippians, and that's what he's telling us. We may not find ourselves in the same situation as the Apostle Paul, sitting in prison, 
But we will face hardships. You will face struggles. And it will be an opportunity for Christ. So no matter what you face, deeply troubled marriages, severe financial pressures, loved ones in crisis, cancer diagnosis, parenting hardships, loneliness, downcast soul, chronic illness, death of a friend or family member, unmet godly desire, whatever it is, know that you can make much of Christ. Suffer for his sake. Recently, I heard a story of two friends who were talking together. One was older and Wise and the other was young and passing through a really hard time, a severe time of affliction. And the older friend with loving wisdom said, no moment will ever again be like this. Let there be something for Jesus in it. And he almost said, what does that mean? And the seasoned older friend replied, it's not, so, it's not something for Jesus if we just dwell on our miseries. Nor if we let opportunities pass without a word of the ultimate hope we find in our Lord. It's not something for Jesus if we think that any other hand has brought us to this place. It is something for Jesus if we think about and speak of his glory and hope in him. It is something for Jesus if we acknowledge and trust his all-sovereign will. Restoration Church, don't waste your suffering. Let there be something for Jesus in it. Some of us will suffer more than others in this world. I've had a relatively easy life. It's kind of ironic that I'm preaching this passage. Many of you have suffered circumstantially much more than I have. But know that the pressures that mold the clay of our life pass through the hands of a potter. And that potter is our Heavenly Father. Listen to this thought. The wise gardener knows best where to plant each flower. And so God, the divine gardener, knows where his people will best grow into what he would have them be. Some require fierce storms. Some will only thrive spiritually in the shadow of worldly adversity. And some come to ripeness more sweetly under softer and gentler influence. He knows what is best for each one. God knows what is best. Paul knows this. He knows his suffering isn't pointless. There's something for Jesus in it. And that's what he wants the Philippian church to know. That's what he wants you to know. Your suffering isn't pointless. It's not beyond God's control. We may not always know his purposes, but we can trust his heart. Suffering in of itself is not good. It's not supposed to be here. It's awful because it's supposed to be awful. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Yet God in His kindness and His infinite wisdom uses the, the messiness of our brokenness to make something beautiful. He doesn't stand far off and tell us how bad it is. He enters into it in the person of Christ. And God in His infinite wisdom takes the effects of living in a broken world, all the struggle and sorrow and he uses them for good. He uses them to help us enjoy Christ. Paul knows Christ in a real way because he suffered for Christ. That's how God uses suffering. To help us know Christ, to help us enjoy the gospel. And then, in his supreme wisdom, he uses that to advance it. That's what we'll see in this passage. And so we suffer because of Jesus. We suffer to the glory of Jesus. 
But then again, I think this text applies not just in times of suffering, but everyday life. Every pursuit, every aspiration. So as we read this passage, and even as you read the whole of Philippians, as I trust you have, as you do that, what do you notice about the specifics of Paul's situation? Very little. You know he's in prison. But he offers no details. He doesn't call, call attention to his discomfort. There is no self-pity. There is no self-absorbed sulking. He's concerned about other people. Paul is. For Paul, the advancement of the gospel controls everything else. As he sits shackled in prison, he writes to convey not his misery but to encourage the Philippian church. As I studied this week, this was convicting to me. I'm not sure I would have written like this. I may have written something like, I want you to know, Restoration Church, that what has happened to me really sucks. It's really, really hard. The food here isn't great. The internet is slow. Cell phone coverage is spotty. I like to sleep with two pillows, one under my head, one between my legs, yet they only give me one. They don't have Amazon Prime or Netflix. They only have PCs and not Macs. I am really suffering. Pray for me. And oh yeah, I shared the gospel a couple times. Pray for that too. Now hopefully, hopefully that's a bit of hyperbole. But I think it draws out the point, doesn't it? Far too often, I'm consumed with my personal comforts and complain about little things in my life. I suspect some of you are with me, so I invite you into my conviction. You're welcome. Our priority, Restoration Church, cannot be that which makes us most comfortable. It cannot be that which makes us most comfortable. Individual comfort is not the aim. That's not why Paul is writing to the Philippian church. Hey, go pursue individual comfort. That's not why he's writing. Why he's writing? To unite them in the midst of suffering so they would enjoy the gospel and advance the gospel. Why do we exist? To make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. Our joy is not made complete by pursuing individual maximum comfort. It's uniting together, loving sacrificially, letting it abound more and more other-oriented love, just like Paul, that the gospel might advance to our neighbors and to the nations. The example of Paul is impressive. It's convicting. It's encouraging. He's so intoxicated with the gospel that it, it fuels everything else. And so are there areas of your life, brothers and sisters, that you need to examine? Are there areas where you are pursuing comfortable circumstances at the expense of gospel advancement? Maybe that's in the way you handle your finances and giving. Maybe it has to do with a reluctance to serve a spouse or a family member or refusing to intentionally get to know your neighbors. Maybe it's it's immediately rejecting the idea of global missions. That's not comfortable. Maybe it has to do with regularly complaining about unmet personal preferences rather than using words to build others up in Christ. 
If an unbeliever were to listen to your life, would they know that Christ is more important than your unmet personal preferences? Now to be clear, it's not wrong to desire or even have some of life's comforts. It's not wrong. I'm saying the pursuit of these at the expense of gospel advancement. Gospel advancement must come first. It is our priority. It's not a secondary thought. And I praise God for many of you who actively put gospel advancement over personal comfort. I think of community group hosts and community group leaders who, if they're like myself, have to sacrifice the comfort idol often. I think of all of you that enter into the messiness of other lives, like DC 127, the porch, and other organizations where you're sacrificially loving others with the hope of letting them see Jesus. I think of how many, how many of you have made life decisions, whether that's housing or job, to stay in or around D.C. so you can be part of the gospel ministry of Restoration Church? It's an evidence of grace. I think of those we've sent out like Andrew and Alex and soon to be the Malero family and hopefully others that are not pursuing personal comfort but saying, hey, I want to I kill this, this comfort. I want to go pursue Christ. I praise God for those things and I could go on, but I, I want to praise you for that and challenge you in this. May our love abound more and more to advance the fame of Jesus. And so these verses call us to suffer for the gospel, to suffer because of Christ, to suffer in all things to the glory of Christ, to have gospel priority over personal comfort. And as we do this, the good news of Jesus will advance. The good news of Jesus will advance. That's why Paul's writing, suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel. That's what we see in this passage, the advancement of the gospel. Look again at these verses and let's read them. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest, my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. Here we see the gospel advancing in two ways. In verse 13, we see the gospel advancing to unbelievers, to those that don't know Christ. And in verse 14, we see advancing in and through those who are already believers. Let's look at those. Paul says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard, or as some of your translations might say, the praetorian guard, consisted of elite Roman soldiers serving directly under the, the emperor, who at this time was Nero. And these high-ranking soldiers and were in charge of keeping watch over prisoners waiting for the trial before the emperor. And then it says, all the rest. Paul's not explicit, but it probably refers just to all the other people that go into a court case, officials and clerks and whatever else they had. But there's all kinds of people around that, that don't know Christ. And so Paul is under constant guard by soldiers and he's constantly interacting with these officials. And he's under their influence. And 
captivity? Or maybe we should say, they're under the constant influence of Paul and the gospel. So can you imagine the conversations Paul would have with his guards? With each changing shift, the new guard shows up and asks Paul, so what are you doing time for? And I can just imagine Paul as loudly as possible. For Christ Jesus! And the guard and the official will get, huh? Paul says, let me explain. Let me tell you about Christ. And then perhaps, just perhaps, he uses what he would later write in this letter to talk about Jesus. And he said, Jesus, he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being found in human form. This Jesus I'm talking about is fully and eternally God. And he entered into human history and became fully human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus I'm talking about died a sin-paying death, shame-obliterating death, guilt-demolishing death. Therefore, God exalted, highly exalted him. He did not stay dead. He rose on the third day and bestowed on him, not Caesar, on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will, knee, knee will bow. That includes yours. And every tongue will confess. That includes yours. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes through faith. That's this Jesus. Do you want to know the surpassing worth of Jesus? And evidently, some of them said, yes, I do. How do I know that? Paul tells us. Flip to the very end of Philippians. Chapter 4. Verse 21 and 22, listen to Paul's final greetings. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Especially those of Caesar's household. So some that were around Caesar's household evidently repented and believed, and now they're sending greetings to the church in Philippi. The saints of Caesar's household send greeting to the saints of Grace Church Philippi. That's pretty amazing. And so maybe some of you are here this morning, you're like those in Caesar's household, that you walked in here this morning not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Maybe you thought that your religious deeds or your good morals could make you right before God. Or maybe you thought that your past was too messed up or your present is too messed up or you're too far from God for Him to have anything to do with you. 
Think about these soldiers. They were in charge of executing Christians. Yet they're not too far from God's grace. And so I ask you, do you want to know the surpassing worth of gaining Christ? If so, I invite you to turn from your sin. Confess to God. Turn from your your, your sin and your shame and your guilt and look to Christ alone. He alone can reconcile you back to God. He alone will complete your joy now and forevermore. And so if you're here this morning and this is new to you and you want to talk about it, come find me. Come find anybody you've seen up front. Ask the person that brought you this morning. But don't walk out of here with thinking about the implications of the gospel on your life. And for my brothers and sisters of Restoration Church, this should encourage us. God's sovereign purpose ensure the gospel will go forth. Though Paul is in chains, the gospel is not. You can restrict the message, but not the messenger. Persecution for the gospel leads to propagation of the gospel. It's what happens. This is how the church got out of Jerusalem. God tells his people, listen, you're me about witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, how does he get them out of Jerusalem? Persecution. You know how the gospel is advancing in so many places around the world today? Through persecution. Suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel as it gets to people who would never hear. More and more people are hearing of Christ. And so this should help us rest in the sovereignty of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing can thwart his purposes. In Genesis 1, he lays out a plan to fill the world with worshipers. And what do we see in Revelation a world filled with worship from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people worshiping King Jesus. The gospel will go forth. And he will use unlikely means, suffering, to advance it. And so this should help us rest in the sovereignty of God, and this causes us to be bold for the sake of the gospel. That's what happened to those around Paul. Not only did the gospel go forth to those who didn't believe, but also goes further into and through those who already did. They're strengthened and they're built up. Look again at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's confidence in the Lord. Remember what he wrote in 1.6. He's confident in the Lord. Brings about confidence for other believers. Since he's in Rome, this likely refers to the church in Rome he would also write a letter to. And so they see Paul's steadfastness in the midst of trial, and they too are strengthened. See, God uses the hardships we face to strengthen those around us. Suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel as it gets deeper into the fabric of the church. Don't waste your suffering. Let there be something for Jesus in it. And that something might be building up others in their confidence in the Lord. We often talk about how those going through hard times need people to walk around them. And I, yes, we do. We need to encourage those people. But for when you're suffering, do not lose sight that you actually get to serve others. You get to build them up in their confidence in the Lord like heat that radiates from a fire to warm everything around it, 
So our warmth for Christ in the midst of trials will kindle in others what burns so deeply in us. So the sparks of our worship during trial will land on others and it will catch them afresh in flames. Worshiping Christ together. Your suffering is a tool for sanctification. To strengthen others. In this, we help each other become confident in the Lord. So we shouldn't just share smiling, happy times. We should suffer in the hard times together. And sometimes that means the sufferer will encourage the other. This is how God works. And what happens because of this confidence? They were much more bold to speak the word without fear. The believers around Paul were not intimidated by what happened to Paul. It seemed to energize them all the more. Paul's confidence gave them confidence. And confidence in Christ results in boldness for Christ. Confidence in Christ results in boldness for Christ. Much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's what happens. There are confidence in Jesus, so we boldly speak about him. It's what Paul was doing. He was confident in Christ, so even in prison he was talking about Jesus. He's encouraging the Philippians. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Be bold to speak about Jesus. And so the gospel advances through confident suffering and bold speaking. And notice who's speaking here. The brothers. Or we could say the brothers and sisters, as a footnote might say. It's not the pastors and the deacons and the church leaders. It's the regular old members, the brothers and the sisters of the church. Telling others about Jesus is not a special task for some Christians. It's a joyful privilege for us all. And notice something else. This boldness results in speaking the word. Boldness for Jesus causes us not just to do good things, but to speak gospel words. Boldness for Jesus causes us not just to do good things, but speak gospel words. There's a common saying that says, preach the gospel and at all times, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's catchy and it's clever, but it's not biblical. It makes no sense. It's the equivalent of saying, go swimming and if necessary, use water. It just doesn't make any sense. In order to explain who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we have to use words. No one will know that Jesus died for your sins and rose again simply by watching what you do. They might know you're excited, but they won't know why. It might make them willing to listen. A generous, humble, gracious, sacrificial, holy life can and should be a wonderful compliment to speaking the gospel, but it can never be the substitute. See, I think for many of us, we like to think our lifestyle is enough because bold speaking directly and explicitly about Jesus Christ can be awkward and hard. See, most people will not be offended if you do a good deed. You help them in some way, you serve them, they're not going to be offended. But the moment you bring up Jesus, awkward, right? Strained interactions. And sometimes 
harsh responses. So as one person wrote, many words can be spoken in human discourse without the the slightest risk or need for courage. Right? You think about that. Weather, sports, go on and on. But speaking this particular word, a Christ-centered word, always requires courage. So recently, Paige and I had about a dozen of our neighbors over for dinner. Uh, We try to do that a couple times a year. And at one point in the evening, Sadie got everybody's attention and said that she had an announcement. I have no no idea what she's going to say. She's like, Dad, I got an announcement. She gets everybody's attention. Awesome. And she, she very kindly thanks everyone for coming, for bringing snacks. And then she says, does anybody have any prayer requests? Awkward. Everybody's just kind of like, what do we do? And that was just ask for asking for prayer requests. I don't, I don't know if Sadie's saved or not. I pray that she comes to faith, but I know that as a seven-year-old, she has confidence in the Lord. And so she didn't think twice about it. Why are we not that way? I think it's because we fear people more than we fear God. Speaking gospel words requires confidence and boldness because it can be awkward. Just because I'm a pastor, I'm not immune to this. Get nervous, fumble the words. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't get to do it. We can't use excuses of I don't have what it takes. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. That's what it takes. You can't say, I don't know what to say. If you're a follower of Christ, you know the gospel. That Jesus lived a joy-filled life, died a substitutionary death, and rose again. He is reigning and he's returning. How do you respond, friend? But notice this. Please, I know there's probably a level of guilt, like somebody like, oh, I've got to go evangelism, uh, evangelism. But notice the motivation here in the text. Their motivation is confidence in the Lord, not fear of condemnation by Him. Big difference. Their motivation is confidence in the Lord, not fear of condemnation by Him. And so our speaking of Jesus is grace-motivated, is gospel-motivated, not guilt-driven. Evangelism starts not by telling others about Jesus. It starts with being full of Him yourself. When that happens, you'll have opportunity to speak of Christ, of the joy and the hope found in Him. And this does not require some special program. Those can be useful. But Paul isn't saying they were confident in the Lord and so they started Tuesday night evangelism. They could. But this seems to be in the course of everyday life for them. And as we, we've seen this morning, the Lord is going to give you opportunities, some wanted and some unwanted, to speak of Jesus. So you're going to suffer because of Jesus. That's an opportunity to show your hope, your trust, your joy, your delight in Christ. 
You'll face difficult circumstances and have the opportunity to struggle to the glory of Jesus as you show your devotion to Him. In the course of everyday life, you'll have the chance to tell others about the greater joy in Christ as you prioritize gospel advancement over personal comfort. In your everyday moments in life, you'll have the opportunity to display following Christ is not about prosperity, it's not about popularity, it's not about being a, a comfortable cultural majority, it's about none of those things. In fact, I'm, I'm sacrificing a lot of personal comfort and, and achievement to advance the gospel. If you do that, if you turn down job promotions or think about them in a different way or living situations, the way you parent, any of those things, I promise you, you're going to have opportunities to speak about Jesus. My wife speaks about more of Jesus because the way she parents our daughters in the course of everyday life. So Restoration Church, let's pray that we're marked with the same gospel confidence and boldness as these brothers and sisters. So one of the things I'm praying for this year, that we would see fruit from our evangelism, that we would be bold in telling others about Christ. So let's pray that God would use our boldness and confidence in the Lord to bring others to faith in Jesus. And that might require suffering and hardship. But know that suffering for the gospel leads to the advancement of the gospel. As we suffer and struggle with a frame of soul that magnifies Christ, boldly speaking of our hope in his sin-paying death and heaven-purchasing resurrection, those who don't know Christ will likely have reason to listen. And those who already know Christ will likely be built up in their faith. So Restoration Church, as this happens, as we enjoy the gospel in the midst of suffering, as we advance the gospel in the midst of suffering, in us and through us, remember, this is what makes our joy complete. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you and we confess that texts like these can be hard for us. So would you show us the beauty of Jesus and the privilege of being ridiculed for him and in the moments of when things are going well, remind us that Jesus is greater in those moments too. Use us, Lord, to be confident in Jesus that we might be, speak boldly about him. Use us, unite us in our enjoyment of the gospel that we might advance the good news of Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations. Do this, Lord, we ask. Amen.